And in Colossians, the second chapter, we're going to read about a warning, which Paul, a warning and an admonition, which Paul gave to the Colossian church. And so as you continue to turn there, as you get there, we're going to lay some preliminary groundwork that it's important for us to know in order to interpret this passage. And if you'll recall, in the Garden of Eden, when God originally made man, He basically made him from mud and breathed into him the breath of life. And there came a time where they were in the garden. And Satan tempts Eve and Adam to disobey the one law that God has given to them. And what he tells them is he says, if you eat of this fruit, you'll not surely die. God told them the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And so Satan comes to them in the form of a serpent and tells them, if you eat of the fruit, you will not surely die. And his marketing jingle for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that if they eat of it, they would become as gods, knowing good and evil. That's basically the last thing he tells them before they break that law and eat of the fruit. And that, sold, that, that was a line that really sold the fruit to mankind. Adam heard that as the last thing that he heard before they partook of the fruit. And he ate it and broke the law of God and really cast the world and humankind into a state of decay. And you read just a, mere, a few chapters later in Genesis, the 11th chapter, that after the flood, all the people were of one language, And they gathered together and they said, again, let us take the mud from which we were made and we'll make bricks and we'll dry them in the sun and we'll build a tower up to the heaven that we might make a name for ourselves. That desire, that desire to become like God, that desire that is within every human being to build their own personal tower of Babel has afflicted us since the days of the Garden of Eden. We still struggle with it on a daily basis because we're all trying to build our own tower. We're all stooping down in the mud of this earth under the preconceived notion that we can build some kind of infrastructure which could bring us up to the level of a God. Now, some people have taken that to greater extremes than others. Some have taken that to such a great extreme that they would say, well, God doesn't even exist. If God does exist, He is in the form of man, and man's just not smart enough, and he's not strong enough, and he doesn't have the willpower to exalt himself to the level of an immortal. That would be more of an atheistic or nihilistic perspective. But we do it in smaller ways oftentimes. We do it every time we forget about the laws that the Lord has laid out for us to follow. We do it every time we forget about the teachings of Jesus Christ and how they affect our lives. Because reality, what we're saying, when we disobey the Word of God, we're shaking our fists in God's face and saying, well, we don't really believe what you say is true. We don't believe that any sin that we commit is an offense against your holy and righteous character. And that although it doesn't necessarily, it does not affect our eternal destination, Oftentimes, our sins can have severe consequences here upon this earth. And we forget that. And sometimes we refuse to acknowledge that what God says is true. Because if we could truly believe and follow the precepts of God's Word, we wouldn't sin. 
But we're flawed. We're decaying. And we disobey on a daily basis. And when we do that, we're stooping down on the earth, we're making our little bricks out of mud, and we're stacking them up into a tower. And we've seen that over and over again. Because especially when it comes to the gospel, we like to try to take it and twist it to our own advantage and dilute the message of the purity of God's grace. And what I mean by that is, the Scripture tells us that eternal salvation comes about through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of God the Father in electing and predestinating His children to the adoption of sons by the good pleasure of His will. The shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and the way in which the Holy Spirit calls those same people here in time, that is that salvation. That has nothing to do with anything that we would dream up, that we would try to do. That is the work of God. But we like to take the gospel and we like to try to make it into the Tower of Babel and say that we could ascend up to the level of a God and somehow dirty the grace of God and the mercy of God by saying that we would there's something for us to do or there's something activity for us to engage in when it comes to eternal salvation. And so Paul in the book of Colossians, he's dealing with a group of people who are trying to convince the Colossians to build their own tower. He's trying to tell these people, we're trying to tell them to take their mud bricks and construct a tower which carried them up to heaven. And he tells them in Colossians 2, in verse 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. See, the Colossian church was under assault. They had multiple groups of people coming into the church telling these things which were in contradiction to the teachings that Paul had taught to them. He taught them that salvation comes about by the grace and mercy of the Lord, by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, don't let any man deceive you through philosophy or vain tradition or the rudiments or principles of this world. Remember the things that I taught you. Because at this time, the philosophy that was infecting the Colossian church was the idea that perhaps Christ was not truly God. We're going to see that here in the next several verses. Because there was a philosophic group that had come to the Colossian church that said everything we see around us is absolutely evil. And because it's absolutely evil, there's no way that Jesus could have come and take upon him, taken upon Himself the form of a servant. Because matter is evil. Our bodies are evil. You know, that's certainly true. But Christ is fully capable of subjecting Himself to that without sin. Yes, He came and walked around in a body as a man. It was flesh. He was God in the flesh. But He didn't have to sin in doing that. That would violate His character as God. So Paul reminds them, For in Him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we we can see that in the New Testament because there was a time when Jesus came to be baptized at the hands of John the Baptist and we saw we'd see a depiction of him in his body 
We see the Spirit of God descend as a dove, and we see the voice of God the Father boom from the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In that encounter where we see the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh coming down to be baptized at the hands of John the Baptist, we see an expression of all three members of the Godhead. And that is an illustration to us that in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ dwelt and still dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So Paul says, don't let these teachers deceive you, these Gnostics, as they were called, deceive you. Because when Christ came down to the earth and he walked on this earth as a man, in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I can't explain it to you any more clearly than I can by using the words of Scripture. In him was the fullness of God. He and the Father and the Spirit were one. And he tells the Colossian church, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality in and power. And he goes on, and he gives him a description of how God effectually saves his children without works on their part. And this is Paul's admonition. Again, beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Because Paul dealt with this in so many other of the churches that he had helped to establish. And that other preachers that he had ordained and brought up in the ministry had established. He dealt with it in the Galatian church. Where many members of the uh, Judaistic religions came into that church and taught them that in order to be saved, you have to adhere to the principles of the law. You have to gauge into into these old traditions which Christ made obsolete in practice when He came down and shed His blood on the cross. He had to deal with it in the Corinthian church because they were going after all manner of sins of the flesh, believing that grace gave them the license to sin. And Paul's going to clarify... Here in a moment, when we read in verse 20, about how we should act when we understand that the grace of God, it's free, it's undeserved, and it has nothing to do with anything that we may try to accomplish. And he says in verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using. After the commandments and doctrines of men, which thing have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Paul takes a common analogy that we see throughout the New Testament and he flips it. We read in Ephesians, the second chapter, that we are brought from it. We are quickened from the dead by God, to paraphrase. We are brought from a state of death unto life in Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit and through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But Paul takes that analogy and he says, when you're, when you're born again, when you are baptized as these people were, now baptism has nothing to do with salvation, but it is a monumental occasion 
by which we examine the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and we commemorate it by coming up before a body of believers and confessing that He is our only hope. And we're buried in the water, figuratively, and we're raised up again to walk in newness of life, in discipleship. And Paul says that not only have you been brought from death unto life in the saving, eternally saving, power of the Spirit of God in the new birth, you have also been buried underneath the waters of baptism and you have been raised again. And he says, in this sense, you are dead to the world. Remember, before we were born again, we were dead to Christ. Now, through His saving power, we're dead to the world. And he says, if you're dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why is the living in the world are you subject to ordinances? Remember his admonition. Beware of philosophy. Beware of deceit. Beware of vain traditions. Because in Christ, you're not subject to those any longer. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. Because these groups that were coming to the Colossian church, they were saying, there are certain things that you touch not, that you taste not, that you handle not. There are, th- there are traditions that you must observe in order to be saved. But Paul came to them and he said, remember what I taught you. It's not about that. It's not about the precepts of the law. It's not about abstaining from certain activities which the Bible does not qualify as sinful, which Christ does not view as sinful. It's, it's sinful. It's about the finished work of Christ. He said, these things have a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. What he's telling them, he's saying that if you want to observe these disciplines, these tradition, some of these traditions, you can do that. It takes a lot of self-discipline. It requires a crucifying of the desires of the flesh. And those things can be very beneficial for the child of God. But he's saying they don't have anything to do with your eternal salvation. They have a show of wisdom or understanding when you can examine something that is not necessarily sinful and realize that it may not be healthy for your walk with Christ. We have to do that on a daily basis. There are many things that we encounter day in, day out that are not sinful. But we have to use Christian liberty and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to discern whether or not those things may be unhealthy for us as individuals. Because what I struggle with, none of you may struggle with. What some of you struggle with, I may not struggle with. I may feel convicted over a certain kind of movie and it may not bother you at all. And the Bible may not categorize it as sinful. But I am required to seek the Lord's face and diligently ask Him what activities I should participate in, what kind of media I should consume, and what kind of people I should spend time around. Because that is relevant to me as as an individual disciple of Christ. And then I take that information and I try to use it in such a way that doesn't offend other people. And Paul's making that point. He says, you may choose not to touch certain things. You may choose not to taste certain things. You may choose not to handle certain things. And that type of decision can be beneficial for the disciple of Christ. 
but it has nothing to do with our salvation. Because he moves in to Colossians chapter 3 and he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Now he's not, that if there at the beginning of that verse is not saying that whether or not we're risen with Christ is contingent upon some kind of decision that we make, lifestyle decision that we make. Saying, if you be risen with Christ, you have the ability and you ought to seek those things which are above. And in seeking the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, we are to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. We're to set our singular affection on the plurality of things. Are you with me? We have one affection, but there's multiple things that we must direct that affection toward. And Paul's point about in verse 9, for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, comes into play. Because we can set our affection on the Lord Jesus Christ, but in doing so, we have set our affection on all things related to God and all things relating to the Godhead. Because when we set our affection on Christ, we set our affection on Christ in His church, we are setting our focused affection on many different things that all relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only are we setting our affection on the Trinity, we're setting our affection on the church, we're setting our affection on His kingdom, and that singular affection allows us to be wholly focused on the cause of Christ. That's why he doesn't say, set your affections on things above, not on things of earth. He says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. Remember, he says, You've, you were once dead, and you have been brought to life. And because of that life, you are now dead to the world. That which you were once dead in, you are now dead to. So no longer walk after the rudiments of this world. No longer walk after the traditions of men. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. That is not an abstract principle by any means. That is something that we can practice on a daily basis. Paul goes on throughout Colossians chapter 3, and he gives us some incredibly practical ways that we can set our affection on things above. And often it involves going back to what he discussed in verse 23, or in verse 21, rather, touch not, taste not, handle not. There are some things that we're not to touch, that we're not to taste, that we are not to handle. Simply because to do so would be setting our affection on things on this earth rather than things that are in heaven. But those, that, those daily decisions, touch not, taste not, handle not, doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you're eternally risen with Christ. Whether or not your sins were in Him on the cross and those sins died with Him. And when he, when he rose from the grave, symbolically representing His victory over sin and death, He said, I have been sin. I have experienced death. 
But regardless of that, I'm coming back. I'm going to rise again. And one day I'm going to ascend to be with my Father in victory and glory. He was illustrating to us that yes, we may be dead in sin, but through Christ, we are brought to life. We are brought from a state of death into life. Sin and death don't have any power over us anymore. Christ symbolized that when He died and He was laid in the tomb for three days and three nights. And at the end of that time, He rose again because He was illustrating to us, don't worry about this anymore. Sin may affect you here in time, but I have won the ultimate victory. So the admonition, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain tradition. After the rudiments of this world and not after Christ. Because you're dead to the world because you've been given life in Christ. And because of that, because of what God has done for you, we are given an exhortation to godliness. Remember, in Scripture, oftentimes, exhortations involving the surety of our eternal salvation are accompanied by an exhortation to godliness. Think about a verse like 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20, where Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth that them that are His. Could we receive any, any more of a clear example of how the Lord knows His children. He knows who they are. He knows that He died for them. And He's not going to see one of them burn in hell. Because He loved them and He died for them and He gave Himself for them. But then after that beautiful assurance, we're told, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Those that have been brought from a state of death unto life are to follow Him a discipleship. The same power which saved you from your sins, not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of his own good pleasure and his own grace and mercy, I would say commands you as someone who has been has been made dead to the world to follow him in discipleship. That's the same power. No, it doesn't have anything to do with you being saved. It doesn't have anything to do with our eternal destination. But the same one that saved us commands us to follow him in discipleship. If ye then be risen with Christ, set your affection on things above, not on things on earth.